Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. This week I'm joined by Dr Louisa Beckford, who is a consultant psychiatrist at ORI. In this week's episode, we discuss type 1 diabetes with disordered eating from a clinical perspective, looking at both the role of therapists, consultant psychiatrists, dietitians, and how they can work with the diabetes team to ensure that someone gets the best support with their diabetes as well as their eating disorder. Hello. Hi, Emma. Hi. How are you, Louisa? Lovely to meet you. Yeah, fine, thank you. It's nice to meet you too. Thank you so much for joining me because it sounds like you guys are very... So it's lovely to have you. And it's actually... um, So I spoke to somebody who has um, type 1 diabetes with disordered eating the other week. And so it's really lovely to now be able to speak to you um, from like a clinical perspective um, as well as his personal experience. That would be really nice to build on. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So we'll get started. Um, So today we're going to talk about type 1 diabetes with disordered eating. Do you, before we start, want to give people a bit of a background about yourself and the work that you do? Um, Yes, thank you. So um, so I've uh, been a psychiatrist for uh, about 25 years, um, maybe slightly less. Um, and yeah, trained in London initially and then moved up to the West Midlands um, and finished my training um, in, um, uh, in sort of in Coventry and Warwickshire. Um, mm-hmm. And did so I did some eating disorders work in London and kind of really liked the, the area. Um, and then when I um, qualified as a consultant, sort of wanted to go, go back into it. So I worked as a consultant on an inpatient eating disorder unit. So I worked on an inpatient eating disorder unit um, and did some community work as well for for a few years and then um, sort of with the kind of difficulty around COVID and restrictions in um, you know what we could offer people with eating disorders um, found that quite quite difficult in the um, the years before joining ORI so um, yeah I moved across to ORI um, about 18 months ago. Oh wow! So you've been there a while, then. Yes, um, yeah, it's gone very, very quickly. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, but I, I don't think we overlapped. I think you just finished mm-hmm. working at Ori when when I started. Um, but yeah, it's been it, it's great. I've learned so much, um, and yeah, I've just seen such a variety of you know eating disorder presentations and um, just being able to have access to the the kind of breadth of experience um, and, and breadth of treatments on offer at Ori has just been just so great. Yeah yeah I think that was the one thing oh not the one thing but the thing I loved about Ori was kind of the MDT team and how there were so many different um, experiences and expertise and you were really able to learn from each other yes. um, and I just wanted to ask as well because actually before I worked at Ori I didn't really know what a psychiatrist consultant psychiatrist did so just for the listeners could you kind of explain what your role is with I guess when you're working with somebody with an eating disorder? Yeah, of course. So it is quite difficult, uh, sorry, different to a normal um, psychiatrist role. 
Um, and I think that's probably one of the things that I, I quite like about it. So you very much have to manage the sort of physical health aspects as well as, um, you know, regularly reviewing people's mental health and, um, you know, sort of fairly often prescribing antidepressants if they're indicated and, and other medications. Um, and you still have, um, depending on where you work, you still have sort of roles that other psychiatrists would um fulfill including sort of mental health act roles and um you know um the ability to kind of treat people using um community treatment orders um and, and assess people for detention under the mental health act so it's really sort of broad work um and then i think in um eating disorders of courage there's a lot more sort of emphasis on um working as a team um and linking very closely with um the other sort of therapy aspects of of treatment so I think you find there's a lot more um, regular sort of interaction and meeting with you know psychologists, therapists, OTs, um, you know support workers um, because I think um, that's key to, to helping people recover from severe eating disorders it's it's the whole you know the whole treatment um, rather than just you know an emphasis on medication um, or, or kind of one aspect of treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that ties in really nicely with the topic of discussion today, because the one thing um, when I spoke to Lawrence a few weeks ago about his experience of having diabetes and also anorexia, he said something that was really important was sort of the communication between his diabetes team and his eating disorder team. Um, yes. So have you had experience in your role of working with somebody with diabetes and they're um, also working yes, with their so team. Yes, in, so in RE at the moment, we well, we have had um, clients with, with type 1 diabetes. And in my previous job, I've um, I've worked with um, with clients with type 1 diabetes as well, not necessarily directly, but, you know, covering for other colleagues and um, kind of being involved in um, kind of deciding whether a particular client was um, appropriate for community treatment or whether we should be looking at in, inpatient treatment. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's something that I think we're probably going to be doing more of um, as, you know, the kind of understanding of um, how the treatment needs to be structured and, and kind of how we need to kind of work really closely with the, the diabetic teams um, in order to ensure sort of safe and effective treatment for both the eating disorder and the diabetes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important, isn't it, to make sure that both things are kind of supported. Um, and I think it's an interesting concept because on the one hand, you have the eating disorder, which someone is trying to recover from. But then on the other hand, you have the diabetes, which somebody is well, potentially learned to live with or is learning to live with. And so it's quite different approaches in terms of how you manage it. But I can imagine that a lot of the kind of aspects that you're having to navigate, um, you know, with like, eating certain foods and um, supporting someone with insulin and things like that, they will then lap over onto the eating disorder. So it, does it become quite difficult to then navigate all of that together? Um, I think it's uh, it's really helpful if you can kind of agree sort of how the, how, how the diabetes is going to be managed um, mm. before treatment starts with the, the eating disorder unit um, and um, kind of agree sort of, like red flags where we might need to look to like more intense um, treatment, for example, sort of, you know, inpatient treatment for the diabetes or 
or inpatient treatment for the for the eating disorders. I think the sort of um, the plan needs to be really carefully thought out before someone steps into a setting like like Ori. Um, and I think the experience that we've had has shown that is that is possible, um, and that the um, diabetes clinicians are you know they're open to really close sort of liaison um, with with the eating disorder services. And I guess they're used to seeing people very regularly. Um, so it's perhaps easier than it might be with other conditions where people might be, I don't know, reviewed sort of once a year or, or, or once every six months. Um, yeah. And then we'd need to bring in the dietitians as well to look at, you know, how how food is managed. You know, they might need to consider things like, um, you know, carb, carbohydrate portions, um, management of um, if episodes of hypoglycemia happen or alternatively, if, if the blood glucose look level becomes high then we need to sort of um, agree beforehand you know how to, how we manage that within within the service I mean the clients themselves will be very used to those conversations so they already will have a clear plan of how to manage that but we need to um, kind of incorporate that into the their treatment um, plan within you know within the eating disorder service yeah and I think that's a really interesting um point there in terms of like you know navigating if somebody does um have an episode of hyperglycemia or you know thinking about carbohydrate portrait uh, portions and things and i i just wonder when you approach a situation like that with a patient because obviously that is something that they're going to have to be mindful of but equally in recovery you know we're kind of the suggestion is to move away from you know monitoring your food intake and monitoring your calories or your macronutrients and things like that but it's actually you know for somebody with diabetes they do have to look on a packet to have a look at how much carbohydrate or how much sugar is in something so how do you tend to support somebody in that sense of kind of you know needing to be aware of things in order to manage um, their blood glucose and stuff but also stepping away from that obsessive nature that you might see yeah no I think it is quite a, a, a kind of difficult sort of um, balance um, but I guess the um, you know the kind of initial focus of treatment is likely to be um, supporting sort of um, you know regular eating which um, will be regular meals and and kind of regular snacks as well and that might be something that um, the clients have sort of avoided um you know before stepping into eating disorder treatment um so once we kind of establish sort of stability with with that then i think um you know the clients will become sort of more confident about um you know um, stabilizing sort of blood sugar levels and um not seeing um kind of large drops or, or, or kind of rises in um, in blood glucose levels. Um, I think um, I was just reading that um, the advice is not to be sort of overly kind of um, anxious about keeping the blood glucose level within a sort of tight mm -hmm. range, because um, I think that's quite, quite tricky, um, especially initially. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, the management would be slightly different to how um, you might think we'd ideally manage manage diabetes. Yeah, and I imagine as well that there's 
like for for somebody that has type 1 diabetes i can imagine it's a a difficult kind of thing to live with anyway because you have to monitor and all of that but then to have the eating disorder on top i can imagine there's quite a lot of like emotional aspects as well that then need to be unpicked so working alongside a therapist as well within that i can imagine the team gets bigger and bigger as you go through in terms of having to have lots of different people on board to support lots of different things with the with the recovery Definitely. And I think um, I think the sort of um, the balance of, you know, the intensity of the input from certain professionals will, will probably shift during the treatment. So I think at the beginning, there might be a really big focus on um, meetings with the dietitian um, to establish a you know a safe meal plan. Um, and then that might step down and there might be more focus on um, more sort of psychological treatment and, and occupational therapy sort of further you know further on in the treatment yeah it's so funny actually because the podcast that i recorded last week we were talking all about mdt and the importance of an mdt and so you're really just reiterating what has been said in that it is so important to have all those different um disciplines I just wanted to talk a bit more um, in terms of, I guess, type 1 diabetes with disordered eating more specifically um, and to kind of give people advice or maybe some things to look out for in case they're working with patients um, that they think might be struggling. So in the work that you've done, are there some like common signs or symptoms that you've seen in patients that you've then thought, oh, I think I might need to, you know, think about whether there's an eating disorder here? Yeah, so I suppose, um, I mean, I think the commonest sort of um, symptom or behaviour that, that you might see is is sort of restriction of insulin use. Um, and then that will kind of show itself in unstable blood blood glucose levels. So um, people will be kind of running very high glucose levels and that um, might sort of tip them over into what's called diabetic ketoacidosis, where... Um, the ketone levels of the blood become very high and it can tip the sort of acid base balance um, of the body and potentially could can be you know really quite dangerous um, so if somebody, somebody's um, having kind of repeated um, presentations with um, episodes of, of di- diabetic ketoacidosis that require um, you know acute hospital treatment um, any sort of um, restriction of insulin um, and and unstable um, blood glucose levels and that that's something that might alert you to thinking that there, there could be an eating disorder um, as well as um, the diabetes. So I think something that might be really useful for the listeners is to just go into a bit more detail because I think often I've seen like posts about um, diabetes and having an eating disorder and it will talk about um, diabetic ketoacidosis and I did a nutrition background so I'm Mm -hmm. very grateful that I understand what that means but it, it is quite a big scary word and concept so I just wondered if maybe you could go into a bit more detail for people to get an understanding of what role does insulin have for people that have diabetes and then what what occurs with the uh, diabetic ketoacidosis when they're not taking their insulin? Yeah, so insulin um, is is really important for sort of um, carbohydrate metabolism and and management of kind of um, uh, glucose levels. So... um, if you don't have insulin, um, then um, that will drive the, the body's glucose um, levels 
high or, or sort of blood glucose levels and then um, that can shift the body to um, generate ketones which are um, kind of small um, um, uh, kind of molecules generated by um, by the liver um, and then if those build up in an abnormal way it can cause um, acidosis um, in the body and that can have a number of sort of uh, you know potentially quite um, significant effects on on the body I don't know if that <laughs> explains it yeah absolutely um so the ketones that you said that they were produced by the liver is that when um like you know something needs to be broken down or like why are they produced you know rather than when you're normally taking your insulin they wouldn't be produced Yes, that's right. So if um, if insulin levels were normal, then the body wouldn't be um, driven to produce produce ketones. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, when when somebody's first developing type one diabetes, um, you see very very high um, sort of glucose levels in the in the blood, very high ketone levels, um, and and, it, and there can be significant sort of um, weight loss as well in the kind of initial presentation of, of the diabetes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I guess from like a scientific perspective, um, and we can talk about the consequences in a moment, um, as well as the diabetic ketoacidosis, but <laughs> what would the driving force be behind somebody not taking their insulin? If that's it, related to an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think um, it, it will, you know, there may well be knowledge that a restriction of insulin um, can um, kind of be a significant promoter of weight loss. Um, and people might have experienced that themselves if um, they've sort of omitted insulin or, um, you know, if they've been unwell for another reason, there's, you know, there's been some sort of change. So they might have that um, sort of experience of, of weight loss associated with, um, you know, lack of insulin. Um, so that, um you, you know that is quite a powerful trigger um for for the behaviors of you know insulin res restriction and other other eating disorder behaviors mm -hmm. and and why is it that like not taking your insulin causes you to lose weight is it that you kind of lose sugar through your urine or what's the process there that happens yeah so the the sort of um you know the way the body deals with with glucose is is disturbed um so um yeah you you'll you'll see high levels of glucose um in the blood but but the body won't be able to sort of deal with with glucose in in the normal way um so so people will lose weight and and you have this generation of ketones as well that i mentioned mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i mean you know that makes sense as to why somebody that unfortunately is struggling with an eating disorder would then do that but i guess there's obviously going to be consequences to not taking that because that's the reason that you start taking your insulin um so what kind of apart from the um, diabetic ketoacidosis what kind of consequences have you seen um with patients yeah. if so i think i mean obviously the ketoacidosis is 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 kind of one of the most worrying things that that we look out for um and that's a kind of acute complication of um restriction of of insulin um then um i guess you know 
if insulin is restricted, then diabetic control is going to be very disrupted. Um, so that, um, you know, could potentially trigger earlier or more serious complications of the diabetes, um, which, um, you know, are known to occur in, um, in, in people with, you know, just with diabetes and not with an eating disorder. But I think when you have both together, um, then, then the sort of, um, you know, the neurovascular complications um, could happen sooner and potentially could be um, more um, significant for, for the person. Um, and um, it's known that the sort of more mortality rates of having both um, uh, type 1 diabetes and an eating disorder is significantly higher than just having a, um, uh, either an eating disorder on its own or, or diabetes on its own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine the challenge of having to sort of navigate both of them. I think it's it must be a really difficult kind of thing to go through. And I just wondered with that in mind, if you have any kind of examples or thoughts there of like the biggest challenges you faced when supporting somebody with diabetes and an eating disorder and how you've overcome those with the patients. So I think in the in our treatment setting, um, you know, we might see the, the acute complications happen. So episodes of hypoglycemia um, are more common um, in people with diabetes taking insulin um, than in, um, you know, um, what the, what we might normally see in, in, in the, the treatment setting. So, um, you know, if we see um, a significant hypoglycemia, then we'd need to, the client would need to step out of the group or the treatment that they're in and we'd have to treat that potentially it might involve going to you know an acute hospital if it's very severe um and you know that could happen kind of potentially repeatedly and that's really sort of disruptive for the eating disorder treatment so it means that you know the planned sort of groups or one-to-one -one, um treatment on that day potentially going to be disrupted um, the person might need to, um, you know, go home to recover from the episode, um, uh, and and then I guess we could also see very high um, glucose levels, and um, it, if that becomes associated with symptoms and um, you know significant amount of ketones, then we might need to read have to redirect someone to an acute hospital to have that treated. So um, yeah, I guess those kind of acute. Um, episodes can be really disruptive um and then i think as you said it's about sort of yeah kind of managing the um the diabetes management alongside the um you know the the eating disorder management um and you know someone might need more regular sort of multidisciplinary team reviews with the diabetes team um invited so yeah it's quite a lot to to organize um but um you know it, it definitely can can be done um and, and i think relapse prevention is is really important um and would need to be sort of built into into the treatment um because you know we probably want to intervene early if we felt that once someone had finished treatment if there were if there were signs that the eating disorder symptoms were kind of deteriorating and affecting them again then we probably want to sort of step in earlier and have an agreement about what treatment would look like um to avoid things becoming sort of really chaotic and um, associated with more physical complications for the client. Yeah, yeah, I think that the relapse prevention part of it was something I was really interested to talk to you about, because I think 
was kind of like I was saying at the start, like you've got one illness that you're trying to recover from, but one that you're having to kind of um, manage and live with. And ultimately, you know, one of them potentially has triggered the other one to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's obviously quite a conflicting dynamic. It's not like you can, you know, if some, I mean, I don't think we can ever say like an eating disorder is caused by one specific thing, but if you've got obvious triggers in your life, you can work to, you know, move away from them or manage them in, in the best way. But, you know, the diabetes management is very much frontline and centre in your day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, so how would you work with clients in order to, you know, really set in good coping mechanisms for them there that they don't, when, you know, life does get a bit difficult or whatever, they don't lean into the, um, like, diabetes um, eating disorder kind of behaviours? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think it's a really important aspect of the treatment. Um, I think, um, you know, like I said, uh, the, the initial focus is going to be on sort of regular eating, um, you know, um, establishing kind of, um, uh, you know, reasonably stable um, blood glucose levels, sort of stopping the episodes of um, uh, ketoacidosis or, or hypoglycemia. Um, and I think initially um, the client will probably be very fearful of changes to eating and changes to insulin um, contributing to weight gain. So I think, I'd, you know, I'd hope with, with time and with confidence in the treatment, they would be able to see that, um, you know, that um, sort of eating regularly and having a regular um, insulin regime um, won't continue to sort of contribute to kind of uncontrolled um you know, weight going up. So I think that should give people confidence um, in terms of sort of managing, you know, in the in the future. Um, uh, and then, yeah, as I've mentioned, sort of looking at, um, you know, particular triggers. Uh, I think we, we often see in our clients um, sort of other physical illness like viral illnesses, COVID, um, where you, you know, quite quickly lose appetite, um, you know, you might lose some weight um, that can really sort of um, uh, bring on sort of um, you know more kind of eating disorder um, symptoms and um, and thoughts and, and people kind of leaning into to more eating disorder behaviors so I think you'd want to try and look at that at them um, look with them in detail at that and, and try and sort of prevent that from um, setting off another um, episode of um, you know a more significant sort of eating disorder symptoms. Is that quite common then in somebody with um, type 1 diabetes to be more prone to illness? Um, I mean, I think I, I see it in our clients with eating disorders, mm-hmm. um, but I suppose it's more just the experience. I mean, it's, it, often it's kind of illnesses that, you know, all of us are susceptible to, but um, just having that experience of being physically ill, losing appetite, perhaps some weight loss can can really sort of, um, you know, cause sort of, um, you know, intensification of eating disorder thoughts and, and behaviours. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wondered as well, you know, when as like a consultant psychiatrist and you're going through medication reviews and stuff with people, is there any ever any conflicts in terms of kind of starting somebody on a medication to support their mental health with their insulin or do they tend to be quite separate? Um, so, I mean, I know um, I've had experience of using 
sort of um, antipsychotics and that they mm. can um, unfortunately sometimes trigger diabetes um, oh, okay. in, in, in people. Um, uh, so I think we'd, we'd want to be careful um, to make sure that, um, you know, if we introduce, I mean, it's unusual that we would use antipsychotics, um, that there wasn't any sort of impact on like blood glucose levels or, um, you know, liver function, which could potentially um, make the diabetic control worse. Um, in terms of antidepressants, I think, um, yeah, I'm not aware of any kind of significant things that we need to, to watch out for, but I think we, we would probably be quite cautious um, about prescribing and we'd want to, um, you know, liaise with the diabetes team if we wanted to sort of introduce anything new um, as well to make sure that they were sort of happy with um, with that. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's interesting about the the antipsychotics, but also good to hear that there's not really that much. Um, you've not had that much experience with things kind of overlapping and getting in each other's way. Um, yeah, I think we tend really... to be um, really cautious about. Well, I do anyway about prescribing yeah. in in eating disorders. So even if we didn't, you know, um, use an antipsychotic, it would be in very very low doses, mm-hmm. um, and would be sort of carefully monitoring. Um, you know, for metabolic side effects and, um, you know, liver function, glucose and things like that. Is there a reason why in eating disorders in particular you're kind of um, very careful about prescribing or did you mean that in terms of like somebody with diabetes as well? Um, I think, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're more cautious in, in, in eating disorders, particularly sort of low weight. So, um, you know, some of our clients might be at a weight that is equivalent to, um, you know, a, a kind of child weight. Um, so, um, you know, and, and prescribing is different in children. Um, and part of that is because of, of, of weight, you know, body weight. Um, and um, there are certain medications that um, can cause effects on the heart, which is sort of um, the risk of that happening is increased if, if you're low body weight. So, um, you know, we have to be really careful about avoiding um that happening or if we do prescribe something being very cautious and monitoring the ecg regularly um and and kind of you know advising clients about about the potential risks as well yeah absolutely yeah i can imagine that changes things quite a lot if somebody's weight is not sort of close to the average adult for for what the drugs have been tested on yeah for example um paracetamol when i worked on an inpatient unit we um each client would be assessed according to their weight and then they'd be um, uh, sort of, um, uh, it would be decided what the maximum dose of paracetamol they could have in a day. So um, clients below a certain weight, would, would it was thought to be unsafe for them to have paracetamol. And then as, as weight as weight restored, um, you could have sort of um, perhaps half the adult dose of, of paracetamol. Um, so... Yeah, we, we, do, we do have to be really cautious. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Gosh, so many things to consider. <laughs> yeah, it's never boring. No, I can imagine. Um, well, thank you so much, Louisa. It's on, It's been lovely to chat to you and to speak to everyone. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Um, it, where can people find out more about Ori and the work that you guys do? Sure. Um, so... Um, or we've got a really good website, which I think gives sort of comprehensive details of what the treatment involves, the sort of team members that 
um, are involved in in the treatment um, and um, uh, you know details about um, the, you know where where we're based and uh, we've got online treatment as well as in person um, treatment. We've recently um, brought on board outpatient treatment, which is really good because it means we can now. Uh, we can open up outpatient treatment to, to new clients, but also use it as a sort of step down from intensive day patient for our existing clients. So that's been such a helpful um, addition to the to the treatment. Um, there are regular um, sort of webinars that the RE put out, which I think um, you know have been really helpful, and um, external sort of experts by experience and speakers are often invited to those. Um, so yeah, I'd welcome people to. To look at that and, and join any that they're they're interested in. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's thank been you. an absolute pleasure and lovely to meet you. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you for for asking me. It was really nice to meet you. And sorry about some of the technical problems, but I think we got there in the end. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And we had yeah. all the curveballs, but um, no, it was it was really lovely. All right. Thanks so Speak much. Speak to you soon. Thanks, thank Lisa. you. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.